Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing Miss Wonderful by Loretta Chase. This was published in 2004 and is the first book in the Carsington Brothers series. So you may remember that it was the second book in the series that actually brought Lane and me together. I know, so so they're this series is quite dear to my heart, not just because of Lane, but also because I love it. I like love the series so much. It's so good. Loretta Chase is so good. She's amazing. So we've already reviewed Mr. Impossible. It was our first ever actual book review episode. Um, but now we're going back and we're going to read the series. So this yep. is the first one, and I guess we'll probably do them in order from here on out and just re-release Mr. Impossible when we get to it. I think so. You know, save us that 40 minutes <laughs> of recording. <laughs> well, and just because it was so early on, I feel like people should go back and listen because we were reviewing one of our mutual favorites. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So I'll start out with the jacket. Due to his history of expensive romantic entanglements, Alistair Carsington now has six months to find either a useful occupation or a wealthy heiress to wed. To prove he is not an idle fop only concerned with sartorial pleasures, Alistair agrees to help his old friend, Lord Gordmore, by traveling to the wilds of Derbyshire to convince Gordmore's neighbors to support the nobleman's proposal to build a canal. Upon arriving... Alistair, a famous war hero and eligible bachelor, finds everyone couldn't be nicer. Everyone except for respectable, practical, spinsterish Mirabelle Oldridge. The last thing Mirabelle wants is for her tranquil little corner of England to be destroyed by a noisy, nasty canal, and she is prepared to use every weapon at her disposal, including her disheveled coiffure and unstylish wardrobe, to stop Alistair. I mean, this is not a bad jacket at all, actually. I would actually say the only thing missing, like, it's so dense with plot words that it misses a lot of the easy charm of the book. Yes. I I would say, like, reading this, I don't know if you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to pick that book up. Like, it's accurate. Yes. It's extremely accurate. Yes. Yeah. Um, But... I'm not, you're right. It's missing, it's missing the charm of this book because that's, I mean, that's what this book is. This book is extremely charming. Every, I want all of the dialogue that they have in this book tattooed on my body. Right? It's, it's so, so good. good. It's so good. So as usual, we wrote our own summaries using a randomly generated number this week. And today our random number is 36. So uh, I'll go ahead. So here's my summary, my 36-word summary. Alistair is a handsome, aristocratic, honorable, yet modest war hero with a history of respectful love affairs. He moves into Maribel's neighborhood, and they fall in love. Unfortunately, he's still building a canal through her land. Yeah, and mine is sexy, scarred war hero with limp is seduced by poorly dressed spinster. Mirabel is tired of being strong and handling everything on her own. And Alistair needs a project to devote himself to and an heiress. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, let's be honest. I don't think we really improved that much on the official summary. (laughs) It's so hard because what makes this book great is 
how pissed off he is that she's tempting him. Yes. And how befuddled she is that, like, a love affair has landed in her lap after 10 years of living alone, secluded in the country. And, like, she doesn't know how to respond to him and he doesn't know how to respond to her. And the fact that it's a well-developed plot with a legitimate conflict where they're actually talking to each other the whole time, it's hard to rave about that cleverly. It's, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, the, the big trope, I think, in this book, I, I don't know. I, I don't think, like, there's a trope. You would think it's, like, the spinster wallflower trope, but that's not really, doesn't really play a part, you know? No, they're not in London. She's not out. This is not the matchmaking mart. This is just, like, she's not a wallflower, and it seems like she had a very successful season. She's a spinster pretty much by choice because she had to go home to save the family. Yeah. Yeah. I it, I think also maybe what's tough about categorizing this book is that there's not like a big trope. Um, There are a there lot are, of little tropes, but you're right. Like their romance is not tropey. Like in exactly. a sense that the character she is and the character he is and the fact that they are very compatible is not tropey. I can't think of another couple in literature like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with I'm trying to, I'm trying with to think the same myself. conflicts and personality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they're just, they're also just really well-developed characters, both of them. Yeah. So. so. But there are a lot of tropes. <laughs> yes. So the first one in this over is overarching, I think. It's present in the two book, Carsington books we've read so far, so I'd imagine it continues, is the meddling parents. And in this case, her parents meddle too. But all of the introduction of Alistair and Mirabelle toward the end is revealed to have been a contrivance by his parents. Yes, yes, it it is. Mostly by his father, which is kind of fun, too, because it's not the meddling mama. That's not like the match, the matchmaking mother. It's the father who's got to manipulate it and figure everything out. And And her father uh is also the one manipulating her. So, yeah, I was going to say, in fact, I. I the first the beginning of this book is from his parents perspective yeah so the first I don't know if it's the prologue or the first chapter but either way the first scene is from his parents perspective well and the last scene is from his father's as well mm-hmm. so it, and I think that's true of the last scene is also from the parents perspective I believe in Rupert's book so mm-hmm. you just kind of got this overlying meddling parents who know what's best for their kids and that's a good wife yes but and it's not I think the other thing is that it's not throughout the text like the book really is about these two people falling in love and not about their parents meddling it just happens to be sort of thrown in there it's the instigator yes the catalyst the impetus yeah (laughs) how Um, many synonyms can we think of so many Uh, also Alistair has dun 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 amnesia Yes. Oh, that's right. He has amnesia. But it's not amnesia that he gets and, like, forgets who Mirabelle is. Right. He has amnesia about something in his past. I mean, he has amnesia about Waterloo. This is pretty, this is, like, in the first chapter. Yeah. It's, it's got to do with his, like, battlefield machinations. Yeah. So, 
it, I'm not I'm not being vague because it's a spoiler. I'm being vague because it's complicated and not worth going into. Just read it. Yeah, right. Just just read it. He does have amnesia. Um, it does affect his relationship, but he doesn't ever forget who she is. Right. And the amnesia trope is it usually involves either they meet and he's forgotten his entire past and she's got to be like, oh, no, is he married or not? Is he, is he worth taking a chance on? Or somehow in the middle of their relationship, one of them forgets who the other is and then the, uh, the opposite member is like, oh, t- t- tabula rasa, time to start over. <laughs> All my mistakes have been forgiven. Oh, absolutely. But it's still amnesia. It is still amnesia. And it's, and it's tropey in the soap opera way. Yes. Of yeah. like... Oh, well, we need a conflict about this thing that's happened, amnesia. Yes. Uh, So she is a woman who runs the estate in her father's stead. So there there are a lot. We just we just read one. My favorite sister, actually, A Secret Love. It happens in that one. Alethea, the the heroine of that book, gave up her season so that she for 10 years could stay home and do it. So that's it's like the exact same trope. Yeah. In that case. And in. Every case with this one, I think we've seen the father is well-meaning but absent-minded. And what causes the absent-mindedness and the degree to which it affects his ability to run the state varies from character to character. But the point is that leaving the estate in the hands of the father was not an option. Mm-hmm. But it's not that the father's a villain. Right. No. Um, and because she had to leave her London season and love behind in order to bring success back upon the estate she has given up on love not in a oh i've had it once and it's gone or i'm not worthy of it but just very practically i can't leave the estate the estate is in the middle of nowhere thereby i am going to remain single forever mm-hmm. yeah and she's not i mean she's resigned she's not exactly happy about it but she's very practical and she's like well i missed my chance she's not losing sleep over it either exactly there are just so many things i love about this book and obviously for alistair who's a man of baton a war hero and who prides himself on not being a rake on being a man who has had love affairs that meant a lot to him but who has been incredibly discerning and not discreet (laughs) in the way they ended, but discreet in carrying them out. Honor is first and foremost for him. And he is so baffled by the fact that this 31 year old spinster is not like prioritizing the maintenance of her virtue. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Especially when she figures out he's into her. She's like, no, 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 no. This opportunity may not come around again. Mm -hmm. This isn't about marriage or not marriage or shacking up. Like literally you make me feel wanted. I have not felt that way in a decade. Yeah. I am not worrying about my virtue right now. Yes. Well, and you know, when we say honor, I think it's more the, like a code of conduct, like a po- personal code of contact that he wants to live by. So when he realizes that some people in the area maybe feel a little bit intimidated by him because his father is one of the largest landowners in the area, Right. He, instead of capitalizing on this, he feels guilty and he's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I should be leaving. Um, maybe I should start every conversation with just to make it clear I'm not here on my father's behalf. Yeah. So uh, it's just something that's really nice. Yeah. I, I, and I, okay. 
the, this comes down to, I think, the kind of hero that Lane and I prefer. We do not prefer the bad boy who is going to be, who has to be redeemed. We prefer the, the man who is trying to live by a code of ethics and is doing his best to be a good person. Mm -hmm. Like, what can I say? That's the kind of person that I, that's the kind of hero that I like. And I, I know this is really silly, but I was writing my notes up and I was like, Hmm, how many books can I think of? Like these, those are my favorite books that have this hero. Like we talked about shards of honor. Like that's, like that book has my favorite kind of couple, which is like the practical, no nonsense woman, right? And then, and smart. And then like the smart, honorable, trying to do the right thing, man. Yep. I will also give Loretta Chase a lot of credit. Rupert also falls into that mold, the hero of Mr. Impossible, who is Alistair's brother. But you can tell they're brothers, but they do not fall into being the same character at all. Yes. Exactly. So they're both good guys who don't take themselves too seriously, who don't need to be redeemed. They're not bad boys who fall for strong, intelligent women who, in spite of being later sons of aristocrats, manage to have an interest in something other than just being Gregory Bridgerton. Um Loretta Chase does a really good job of of making this family recognizable as a family without falling into the trap of having all of her male heroes from that family basically be the same person with a different date of birth. Yeah, no, she does a really good job of differentiating the characters from each other. I think, and again, this is the kind of book that we like are books with like strong characterization. I think that Loretta Chase's books have that. That's just one of her strengths is good complex characters. Yes. And then the last trope I just want to call out up front is we have the clear everything off the desk and put you on it. Trope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, once again, I like that. <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> um, and then before we get into the, get more into the plot. I just want to say that I love Loretta Chase's writing. We've talked about this before, but about how she does this really great job in avoiding anachronisms. And yet the book is not boring or hard to understand. I think it's similar to like Georgette Hare mm-hmm. in that way, uh, is that you you really get this sense of the time and place. And it does, it is similar to reading like Jane Austen's dialogue a little bit, you know? Yeah, and I think one of the moments in this book where that was most evident for me is she, Mirabelle goes to the inn where Alistair is staying um, to drop off some items for him. And their exchange gets heated and they both like recall where they are and go back to behaving with incredible comportment. And it's not just, you're not just told that, you see the way their dialogue changes. Like you see the way they change how they're addressing one another and you're aware of the heat still underscoring the scene, but you are very aware of both of their need to pay attention to social propriety until they can get to a different location. And I feel like a lot of other romance novelists that I love give in and have that fight there. Yeah. And it's the difference between an, an author who's paying attention to historical anachronism and one who's not. Yeah. I mean, Eloisa James's most recent book, the hero and heroine like make out on the street. Right. Like, Okay, like they couldn't resist each other, but really? 
wouldn't they have been like arrested for that back then? <laughs> I mean, like not to say anything, but like I, 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 I wouldn't be arrested for that. But I don't make out on the street. I never have. I can't say the same. <laughs> but you could have resisted it. You could have been like, mm, I don't want to make out on the street right now. It wasn't like a busy street. Fair. I'm there. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying. I don't know what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like if you want to contrast it with, say, Julia Quinn or Tessa Dare, whose books I really like, mm-hmm. um, you, you, I don't think anyone would make the argument that they're like really trying to be historically accurate. Right. It's the. It's the way that, like, in old-timey letters, even in the midst of a feud and, like, challenging someone to a duel, to quote Hamilton, you sign the letter, your obedient servant. Right. It's, like, the degree to which social propriety was observed by second nature, even in the most heated of exchanges. And I think Loretta Chase does that so well. She does does a great job. Okay, so let's, let's just say really quickly that she's older than him. She's only older than him by two years, but still, uh, it's you see this so rarely. You see it so rarely that they're even the same age. That I, you just, I just have to call it out and say, like, thank you for that. Yeah. So, it's great. So he is the third son, the middle child. So there, the yes, there are there are five brothers, five, five brothers. And as the first chapter points out, the Earl of Hargate would have been very happy to have an heir, a spare, and then three daughters, because with the daughters, he could just give them a dowry and then say, you know, bye. But with his sons, he's really got to take care of them for a long time. <laughs> and he's just basically tired of it. So he, his third son, Alistair, has been particularly expensive, as he puts it. He's incited riots over women. He has been publicly called out over women. He's, he said he's had, quote, seven or eight incidents, and it depends on if you're counting the incidents or the number of women involved. Yeah, right. Whether it's seven or eight. And rectifying each of those involved a great deal of assistance from his best friend and his father's wallet. Yes. Well, and I think my favorite is when he he wrote these letters to a married lady and then they fell into the hands of a servant. The servant tries to blackmail him. But Alistair is so honorable that he he won't pay the blackmail. But he he, anyway, it's anyway, it's just great. (laughs) It's perfect. So he's had all of these expensive uh, trifles. But so basically to get his middle child out of his hair. His father buys him a commission on the continent, and it's supposed to be a bureaucratic, paper-pushing, administrative position. However, Alistair doesn't do well being on the sidelines while men are out fighting and dying, so he cons his way into serving at Waterloo. (laughs) Yes, and then Alistair, like the Sinsters, survives. Unlike the Sinsters, Alistair is gravely wounded. Saving common soldiers. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. He, he wasn't like uh, so honorable. He's so, he, not only is he like super honorable, as Mirabel points out later in the story, he makes he just makes a great story. Yeah. And so now he's this very he's one of England's most famous war heroes. 
um, because of his actions and how heroic he was and how funny he was when they were going to amputate his leg. He said, oh, you know, it's a shame we'd grown so attached. No, it's perfect. And so at this point, he comes back, but he comes back with PTSD. Basically, yeah. Um, amnesia, PTSD, and just the general trauma of having seen one of the bloodiest and worst days of fighting in the history of war. And so he spends three years kind of listless. The only passion he seems to have, so he's not with any women anymore, the only passion he seems to have is for his clothes. And so he is impeccably turned out. However, as you can imagine, that is also very expensive. So his dad is just so over it. He's like, I'm not paying to save you from scrapes anymore, but your tailor's bills are gonna bankrupt me. Okay, you either need to marry an heiress or find an industry, or I'm gonna disinherit your little brothers. Exactly, like, and, they, uh, and of course, this this is the threat that works on Alistair. If his father is gonna disinherit you, fine, whatever. I don't think he would have cared. The fact that he's gonna punish his younger brothers for his sins, that's what got, uh, gets Alistair to do it. I mean, Alistair basically is like the white knight. He's got like white knight complex. He wants to save people. But he is like better dressed than Beau Brummel. Also, like, so he's not only is he a white knight, he's like, I, I'm just like imagining like the most. This is the sexiest in a dapper way. Like yes. obviously we have like the rugged sexy heroes. This is the like, not a hair out of place. Everything is tailored to a T. Manners are impeccable. Has the perfect body to fill out the style of the time. Like he is the equivalent of the male model. Like he just, everything about him is pitch perfect. Which is hilarious because Mirabelle, living out in the wilds of the country, having to be both lord and lady of an estate, having no one to impress, is as unturned out as it's possible to be. And when she realizes that this bothers him, she then goes to great lengths to exacerbate it. Yes. She was like, I have found his weakness, and it is that he can't stand the way I'm dressed. So not only does she wear, like, the ugliest clothes, she also gets her maid to do her hair the ugliest way possible. And then my favorite, like, my favorite detail is that she has this ugly coronet. So not only is the coronet itself ugly, she threw it on the ground and stepped on it so that it got dented, and then she wears it to the dinner party. And, like, wears it with the dent, like, prominently faced. It's so good. And so he's just so bothered by her. And obviously it's also because he's incredibly attracted to her, but it's this combination of being incredibly attracted to her. And the thing I love that this described in so much detail, part of why he's so bothered by her is that he has this like mentality of propriety that is you are so buttoned up when you're dressed for the day and that it's only in these very intimate settings that you see one another in any way undone. And her hair is like constantly half falling out and her clothes are kind of so ill-fitting he can tell the style of the chemise and like one day she's not wearing a corset and he can tell Mm -hmm. and it drives him to distraction because all he can think about is being in bed with her because he's like the only reason I should be seeing your hair coming down is if we're having sex but here you are in your dying room yeah he's just so upset by it it's it's great um and then something I really like too is a little bit of the the role reversal so yeah I mean he's the one who cares about clothes she doesn't 
um, in a letter from her aunt. So her, her, her aunt writes to her about him. So she's trying to gather intelligence on him because he's in the area trying to build a canal through her land that she does not want. Right. So she's gathering some intelligence to try to figure out how to get him to leave. And in the letter, it's written, for a man, he was amazingly intelligent. <laughs> and, so, you know, sorry, not sorry. I don't care about a little bit of reverse misogyny. It's perfect. Um, so the only thing I could say that is like a minor criticism of the structure of this book is the conflict of he wants to build the canal. She doesn't. He's she's a landover with landowner with concerns of a state, basically, whereas he gets to have a niche interest and be kind of into like um, community engineering projects, basically. Yeah. This was enough of a conflict and was interesting enough and gave them both purpose and the back and forth, especially with his injury and him dealing with his Waterloo stuff. That was enough conflict. Toward the end of the book, there's like a kidnapping plot where you mm. end up in the kidnapper's perspective. And it did just slow everything down. Yeah, that's that's my exact criticism. That's my only criticism of this book is um, this guy named Finch is mm. Caleb Finch's point of as a as a viewpoint character. And then the whole thing that happens, the whole kidnapping, like it's just. And it's not even that I hate the concept of the kidnapping. It's that if you'd removed everything from the kidnapper's perspective and it had just been she'd gotten the letter, she'd gone home, he'd been missing, and then they found him, I don't think you would have lost anything from the book. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, honestly, it's a very similar criticism to what I have of Mr. Impossible as well. So, But they do have more sex toward the end. They do. They do. So good thing. Yes. Um, also, can I just tell you that Loretta Chase makes a really big deal about how low his voice is? And like so he's supposed to be sex incarnate. Yeah. And so basically I just every time he would talk, I would like imagine it in Alan Rickman's voice. And I was like, yes, give it to me, Alistair. Okay. Yeah. Now that I say it, you're like, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm there. I'm in. Uh-huh. Just the voice. Doesn't have to look like him. Oh, God, no. Mm-mm. And not like Alan Rickman is horribly unattractive, but just like... That's just not Alistair. Alistair looks nothing like Alan Rickman, but vocally. But voice. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. What about this book offend you? No. I mean, I would definitely say trigger warning, PTSD... Um, and it does delve into some mental health stuff, especially like post loss and trauma and trauma. But yeah, it, it there's a little bit of the, it's called melancholia or pernicious melancholia. So of course, not of course, but the, which would be depression. Um, I think it's pretty well handled, to be completely honest. You're not. I, I wouldn't call it offensive. Just trigger warning. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So not. The first time I read this book, Meg told me about an article she read that Meg now doesn't remember. <laughs> I swear I don't remember this. That talks about their initial sexual encounters are initiated by her and that if you did a gender reversal, they might be read as a little bit creepy. Because he is saying no while meaning yes. But 
it's not while they're touching. That's and that to me is the difference. Like she might have like come into his room uninvited and started taking all of her clothes off while he's saying no, but then basically he's convinced by her talking and he's the one who grabs her and starts making out with her. So mm-hmm. to me, that kind of changes it that even though in theory there could have been this no, no means no element, the fact that none of their physical interactions happen with that going on changes it for me. Yeah. So let's talk about the sex. It's Laura Chase, right? Yeah, so I mean, this, it's explicit, but it's not, we're not talking about Tessa Dare. We're not talking about Elizabeth Hoyt. Stephanie Lawrence. <laughs> no, no. We're more on Julia Quinn level, but I honestly have to say I found it. What am I? I'm, I don't want to say it that I found Julia it. Quinn's sex is angsty. Yes. I would say I don't want to I don't want to say that I I find it just really I would say so Sabrina Jeffries has very sexy sex but in many of her early books the sex was also like character development and I think that that's what this reminds me of the most is that it's not super sexy but they're they're having conversations about what they mean to each other there's character development yeah so there's a lot of lust in the beginning which yes. is great like the sexual tension and the build up is really 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 well done and they are, the sex scenes are developing their relationship very explicitly to the point that at the beginning of one scene, he says the phrase, I won't marry you. And by the end of the scene, he's saying, so we're getting married. <laughs> and it's really, and not because he ruined her or anything, which made me love it even more, honestly. It wasn't like out of honor. It was just out of like, ah, shit, I can't live without this. Fine. Uh-huh. Which was great. But I do think the difference between Julia Quinn, just because you're right, I think that's what we've read the most recently on this like explicitness level. A lot of the Julia Quinn sex was like really emotionally charged and either they just forgiven each other or they were fighting through it or whereas this very much like the sex itself was fun. Yes. Even if they were like disagreeing over something, the sex was not angsty. Yeah. And she somehow manages to maintain this, her writing style. Mm-hmm. Of not being anachronistic, but also having this explicit sex scene. It's just really well done. Yeah. I just think it's great. I mean, it's just really good. And like Lane said, um, their first, so they make out on the desk, which is, so let me take a step back because this also, there is, so there's a little bit of forced proximity here. So there's, speaking of a trope, there's some hurt, comfort, and forced proximity. So yeah. she's taking him on a tour. He falls off his horse. Um, or no, he doesn't fall off his horse. He gets off his horse and he, he falls down a hill and bumps his head. Um, and then she's like, oh no, I've just killed the son of the Earl of Hargate. <laughs> Takes him back to her place to recuperate. He's got a sprained ankle on his bum leg side and a knock on the head. And a knock on the head, which is bringing back a lot of the memories of Waterloo, too. So it's some mental health issues going on. And that's why they call it reverse amnesia. Reverse amnesia, yes. (laughs) And um, so they're, they're at her house. He's talking to her. They just can't stand it anymore. They cave. They make out on her desk. And then he's like, I gotta get out of here. First, I can fix your hair, and then I've gotta get out of here. 
Yes. Yeah, so his he, obsession with fixing her hair is like so profoundly erotic. So good. I can't even explain why because it's all played for laughs. But it's just like the degree to which he has to do her back up is a lot. Yes. Well, it like it's like he gets driven to the point where basically she just sheds hairpins because she can't do her hair very well. And uh, he, I, you can do your hair pretty well and you have long hair and you usually wear pins. You shed pins. That's just the reality. Yeah, but she sheds them like more than usual. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, I can't handle this. And like literally one of the first the first time he ever touches her is because he cannot stand the fact that her hair is falling out. And he just like grabs the pins and he's like, stand still, puts her hair back in. And she's like, holy shit, this man just put his hands on me. But like in her hair, you know, and I right. he at the same moment is like, oh, my God, I just touched her hair. I can't believe I just did that. Yeah. But it's so sexy. So anyway, he's like, if I stay in this house with her, I'm going to end up we're going to end up doing it because we're, because of forced proximity, you know? And because she has no resistance. Yeah. She's like, "Mm -mm, I'm not like, why would I resist? Are you supposed to have interest in preserving your virtue? And she's like, not really. And he's like, I can't do this for both of us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I'm out of here. So he goes to a different house in the neighborhood where she goes by to see him one day and then ends up for reasons that I won't get into because they're very cute. She ends up sneaking into his bedroom and then Here seducing him. But the way she seduces him is like the most straightforward, practical way. She basically is like, hey, I want to have sex. And he's mm-hmm. like, no, we really shouldn't. Basically, like Lane said, aren't you interested in preserving your virtue? She's like, no, I'm not interested at all in preserving my virtue. And he's like, ah, uh, don't know what to do right now. And she just kind of basically undresses. And at the beginning, he claims his other opposition to a physical relationship with her is that he is there representing the interests of her enemy, quote unquote. That is out the window the second she's taking her clothes off in his room. He never thinks about that again. Oh, no, never. And so I just love that she's not like trying to be sexy. She basically is just like, I have too many clothes on. I need to get them off. It's also described kind of unsexily because obviously we've read enough romance novels to know how difficult it was for women to get into and out of their own clothes especially aristocratic women and so she's like tried to do the back of her dress realized she couldn't kind of point it sideways gotten stuck in it so instead she takes off her like stockings and throws them at him so she's like by the end before he finally deigns to assist her like I'm just picturing her dress is like roughed up totally twisted like her chest dress portion is no longer covering her chest. Like what should be her side is covering it. Yeah. And the seams are all in the wrong place. Like I imagine it being this like profound, profoundly inelegant moment. Yes. Which was probably driving him just as crazy as the fact that she's getting undressed. Yes. But he's just like, Oh my God, you're going to rip the damn thing. And not like in the heat of passion, but because you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's just this really nice, intimate, fun scene. Yeah. I just I really love it. I really love this sex scene, <laughs> basically. I think it's just great. Um, and then the next time they get it on, it's uh, it normally would be something I think that Lane would not be into because it is, in fact, at her mother's grave at the mausoleum yeah. where her mother is buried. Mm-hmm. And yet it's so well done that 
it, it doesn't, I don't, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just like very sweet and it doesn't bother you. It didn't bother me. And I think it double didn't bother me because he realized it. And that's why he stopped. Exactly. And I love that there are happenstance circumstances that prevent them from having penetrative sex the first several times they hook up. And like the humor of that also, I think, adds to the moment. And it's not like they're also literally on top of her mother's grave. Her mother's in the family mausoleum and they're in front of the mausoleum. So I think those mitigating factors helped make it totally fine for me. Yes. Um, And then I will say that she gets cold feet before their wedding and he has to convince her to get married. And the reason she has cold feet is so cute. It's like the cutest thing ever. He's like, look, and, and, and I love too that he goes in and he's like, I know this is not about marrying me. What is going on, Mirabelle? And she explains and he's like, don't be ridiculous. You're fine. And then he convinces her to get married by having sex with her, basically. Well, the thing is, he attempts to say we can do this after we're wed. And she's like, no, I need to do it before. And he's like, who am I to argue with my wife to be? And everyone in the church is aware that they definitely had sex right before walking down the aisle. Because they are late to their own wedding because they were having sex. They are late to their own wedding. And also the famous dandy Alistair Carsington is like completely must. Yeah. So basically, I love this book. Yeah, highly recommend it. Highly. Like, seriously, this this book was published in 2004, um, especially compared with compared with its contemporaneous publishing. I mean, if you think about the books we've been reading recently, like the um, the Bridgerton series and the Wallflower series, especially compared with those, this is like tip top, like so good. Yeah, it just it doesn't feel dated at all. No, not at all. It's just really well done. I love Loretta Chase. I love the Carsington series. I I really, really love this series. So we will definitely be reviewing more of them in the future. Thank you so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe.